You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The 20th century was defined by big energy and big power, usually protected in various ways from a real competitive market. And I think what's different about 21st century energy is competition. I think that incumbents traditionally get disrupted and the new companies, the new kids on the blocks tend to take all of the growth and market share. For November 24th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. For more than a decade, a variety of approaches have been used to shut down coal plants as part of the energy transition, from pressuring financial institutions to stop financing coal plants, to organizing public protests against new coal plant construction, to persuading utility regulators to look at the relative cost of cleaner alternatives as part of utility procurement proceedings, to applying various emissions control requirements, to using special facilities like the coal plant securitization approach. And as we have discussed in several previous episodes, such as 91, 93, and 138, there is reason to believe that coal's future is dimming through the action of pure economics. But as our guest in today's discussion emphasizes, that may not be enough. Or as he puts it, economics aren't destiny for the existing fleet. Economics may be sufficient to stop the construction of new coal plants, but they aren't necessarily going to push existing plants off the grid for many reasons, including the ones we discussed in episode 113. And while the securitization and retirement approach that we discussed with Colorado legislator Chris Hansen in episode 92 may work well in some states, not all states are offering such a facility. For many of the world's existing coal plants, the only approach that still might work is to just buy them out and shut them down. But how? Where will the money come from? And if the money is public, how can we make sure that the buyouts will benefit the public and not the big banks? How will we obtain the lowest price for the plants? How quickly can we execute the buyouts and retirements? And how can we make sure that the power is replaced by clean power plants and not by natural gas-fired power plants? Beyond these logistical questions, there are other important related issues. What role should U.S. government agencies like the Federal Reserve and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission play in implementing climate policy? What responsibility do major media organizations have to support the energy transition? And what about the so-called just transition away from coal? Is it real or just a comforting talking point? Our guest in this episode has a wealth of experience to draw upon to answer these thorny questions. Justin Gway, who you may remember from way back in episode 12, is the Director for Global Climate Strategy with the Sunrise Project, a charitable organization based in Australia. Justin has worked for over a decade in nonprofit advocacy and foundation strategy development, including managing grant-making and strategy development for global coal campaigns at the ClimateWorks Foundation and Packard Foundation, running the Sierra Club's International Coal Campaign to Transition Energy Systems Beyond Coal to Clean Energy, with a special focus on international finance, and living and working in Mumbai, India, where he supported local community groups advocating for clean energy solutions and distributed solar companies serving poor communities. He's a longtime friend and colleague, and I'm very pleased to have him return to the show to share his unique perspective on how to get coal out of the global energy system. And as you may expect, the news segment of this episode will feature another extra-long edition of our ongoing feature, Coal Death Watch. 
But before we go to the interview, I just want to remind our annual subscribers to take full advantage of the value of their subscriptions by logging into our website, where you'll find our extensive show notes, interactive transcripts, and the text of the news segment for every episode, our new job board, the three free share links we give you each year to share our show with a friend or colleague, and other options to buy a gift subscription for a friend. Remember, you have to be a full subscriber and log into our website to access all those features. And for those of you who haven't yet joined our supporters, remember that we offer half-price annual subscriptions to students, as well as graduated discounts for groups, academic institutions, corporations, and other organizations. You can find all of our subscription options and discounts by clicking on the Become a Member button on our website. And now, our conversation with Justin Guay, recorded September 22nd, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome back, Justin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me, Chris. How long have you been working to shut down coal plants and monitoring the decline of the coal sector between your various jobs? I think I've kind of lost track. Yeah, you and me both. (laughs) To be honest, it's a lot longer than I had even realized. I'm going on my 14th year. Wow. I started back in the day at the Sierra Club running their international program, which focused a lot on international pressure around financial institutions to announce finance restrictions on coal, and we supported coal plant protests, local communities protesting against new coal plant construction all over the world, really. And then I've worked at the Packard Foundation, the Climate Works Foundation, and now I'm at the Sunrise Project, not to be confused with the Sunrise Movement. And I guess the common thread across all of those gigs has been a preoccupation with ensuring the demise of the coal industry and withdrawing financial support to make sure that happens. Wow. 14 years. That is a long time. So you've actually been watching this long decline of coal. I mean, you've had a front row seat. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when everybody didn't think it was inevitable. And it was a pretty radical notion to think that we could move beyond coal, period. So it's kind of interesting to watch how much the politics, economics, and broader kind of cultural zeitgeist has shifted on this one. For sure. So I wanted to have you back on the show today to update our listeners on the state of the coal industry worldwide, because although we've reported on a lot of the specific developments in the coal sector over the past couple of years, you know, just sort of one plant at a time or one policy at a time, it can really be easy to miss the forest for the trees. So today, I'd like to get your take on the state of finance for coal plants. And then maybe we can touch on some of the current events in the coal sector. And then I'd like to sort of wrap it up with a look at how various efforts to execute this just transition, as it's called, are coming along. So to start with, what is your view of how the world is coming along in phasing out coal? I mean, I think a lot of people still think that there's this huge expansion of coal-fired power plants underway, particularly in Southeast Asia. But as we discussed with Tim Buckley back in episodes 91 and 93, and then later with Laurie Mulevirta in episode 138, It looks like the pipeline of new plants has really been drying up for the past several years, and the new plants that are being built aren't running enough to be economically viable. I mean, they've got capacity factors around 50%. And just for a few other data points to kind of tee you up here, there was this recent report by E3G, Global Energy Monitor, and Ember, showing that more than three-quarters of the world's planned coal plants have been scrapped since the Paris climate deal was signed in 2015, and that 44 countries no longer have any plans to build more coal power plants. Then there was another recent report from Ember titled India's Zombie Threat, which said that as long as India achieves its renewable energy generation targets, even if its power demand grows 5% annually in line with the most optimistic international energy 
agency projection, India's coal-fired generation in 2030 will be lower than it was in 2020. And then for a final point, just yesterday, a reminder to our listeners, we're actually taping this conversation on September 22nd, so this is airing considerably after that. Chinese President Xi Jinping announced that China will stop building new coal-fired power projects abroad. And the precise meaning of what he said apparently needs some clarification, but I think most people have taken it to mean that China will cease all sorts of activities related to overseas coal-fired power projects, including financing, lending, underwriting, insurance, construction, technology transfer, and so on. So although this doesn't mean that China is radically curtailing its own domestic coal consumption, it is still the world's largest coal consumer and has the largest installed capacity of coal-fired power plants, as well as the largest pipeline of new coal projects and capacity permitted and under construction. But as the world's single largest provider of public finance for foreign coal plants, although not the largest such financier in terms of public and private capital, it still seems like a very significant move. And I should also point out that with this announcement, the top three providers of public finance for coal plants, that's China, South Korea, and Japan, have all announced that they will stop funding those plants abroad. So with that long preamble... What is your view? Does stopping new coal plants still need to be a major priority for climate activists, or are economics and climate policies now able to do that job? Great question, Chris. (laughs) I'm going to give the case for coal, the case for why we need to keep our eyes on the prize here. And I will differentiate a bit between coal expansion and coal retirement as we go through. But let me just start from the premise that the transition beyond coal is inevitable. I think that is very clear from your preamble and from all of the data available at hand. The timeline on which it happens is not. And I think that focus on time and how fast we can achieve this transition is the case for continuing to focus our efforts on ensuring that no new coal plants are constructed and the ones that exist around the world are retired as fast as humanly possible. So there are two data points I think I use to contextualize or put myself in the right place on the long arc of this transition. The first is that the IEA thinks or projects that we hit peak coal burn back in 2013-2014. So, you know, it's all about the burn. That's the number that matters, how much tons of coal we're burning annually, and we have peaked. And the challenge we face is what the slope of the other side of that peak looks like. And right now, the problem is that the descent of that line is not as steep and not as fast as it needs to be. And the big threat that we face is that it becomes a bit of a flat, meandering plateau that we linger on far too long in order to meet our scientifically determined deadlines. So that's kind of the first data point. The second is that even though we're seeing significant retirements that are accelerating across the OECD, largely the U.S. and Europe, We're still seeing an expansion of coal plants in Asia, largely driven by China, both at home, that's where the vast majority of new coal plants being proposed and built are actually geographically based, as well as abroad. And so that last point you made in your preamble about China cutting off the spigot of public money, it's a big deal because China is really the singular driving force for what is left of coal expansion in the world. So it's a bit of a mixed picture in terms of what parts of the world we are making progress somewhat on the timelines that we need and what parts of the world we're not. But ultimately, what we need to be focused on is that timeline. And the IPCC and the IEA have both defined, at least for coal plants, 
very firm, very clear phase-out deadlines. So we need to have the entire coal fleet across the OECD retired, not running, not in existence by 2030, not with some CCS facility that will or won't work at God knows what the cost. And we need to have that same coal fleet in the rest of the world retired by 2040 and the rest of the world really dominated by China. So that's a pretty gargantuan task when you think about it. We may be winning the battle when it comes to avoiding new plants being built, but right now I would argue we're losing the war when it comes to how fast we're taking them offline. And so I think that's really the case for maintaining a clear laser-eyed focus on ensuring we address coal. I think maybe last thing I would say is that coal is the first cut and the first cut is the deepest. That lovely Cat <laughs> Stevens song, all of the models focus on how much reductions have to happen from coal in the power sector. It comes before everything else. And so I think the thing we need to remember is that if we can't maintain the timelines for coal, then we're losing time for all the other stuff that's much harder, whether that's industrial decarbonization, whether that's dealing with deforestation, all of the other parts of the decarbonization challenge for which we just haven't made the same progress as we have with coal. And so every early year of retirement, every year we beat those scientifically mandated deadlines is a year we are buying in time for the harder stuff. And so I think that's, for me, why I think we need to be laser-focused and why it would be very dangerous at this point in time to not ensure that we finish the job. Yeah, I take that point. I mean, I guess the way I look at it is I agree with you that we're still not going fast enough. Ideally, we would shut down every coal plant in existence today or a decade ago, frankly. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. We still are well short of where we need to be from a climate standpoint in terms of shutting down coal. But at the same time, you have to agree, I think, that we're making terrific progress here in terms of where we were even two years ago or three years ago in terms of shutting down coal. I think it's safe to say that we're no longer facing this massive build of new coal power plants that everyone was so worried about just two or three years ago even. And I think you would also have to agree that this new announcement from China is very significant. I mean, if they're not going to be financing foreign coal power plants anymore or helping to build them, who is? Yeah, I do agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think this is where the nuance in your question is important. There's a big difference between stopping new coal plants from being constructed and the challenge we face with retiring the ones we've already built. Mm. I think on the former, we are very, very close to being done with that task. Though I will say, if you look at the latest report from Global Energy Monitor on net, we still expanded the global coal fleet by about 12 gigawatts last year. It's not much, and that was the difference between basically new coal plants being built inside China or by China outside of China, and then the coal plants being retired increasingly quickly in the US and Europe. So we still have a bit of a corner to turn in terms of new coal plant build. But I do think that the writing's not on the wall. I mean, the whole damn wall is full of graffiti. We're done with that job. And we are now really turning to what we do about these legacy assets. And I think that's where the end game comes. And we have to think more thoroughly about how we get from here to there. Because it's just a totally different task to take an existing depreciated asset offline than it is to stop something from being built in the first place. Right. Okay. So... That's a great point to make, to sort of clearly separate between new builds and shutting down existing plants. So on the point of, 
I guess what I really want to talk about in today's conversation is that question about shutting down existing plants. And it seems that pressuring financial institutions to stop financing coal plants has really been one of the most effective strategies of late. In the news items of this show, we've reported on a lot of financial institutions pledging to stop financing and divest from coal holdings, particularly over the last year. So then turning to this point about how to shut down existing plants, I think the strategy du jour is to buy them out and to shut them down. So I took particular interest in an article that you recently wrote for Canary Media titled Five Rules to Make Sure the Coal Plant Buyouts Benefit the Public, Not the Big Banks. And that article talks about how financial institutions are changing their policies on financing coal. And you open the piece by noting that, according to RMI and Carbon Tracker, 93% of plants worldwide are insulated from market competition by long-term contracts and non-competitive tariffs, meaning that they can continue operating even when they're operating at a loss. I don't think we need to get into why that is in today's discussion, because we discussed at least some of those reasons in episodes 113 with Joe Daniel, but I do want to hear about how we can shut down those uneconomic plants. And it seems like your answer is primarily to simply buy them out using facilities like securitization, as we covered in episode 92 with Chris Hansen. Is that what we need to do here to just shut these plants down? And how do you round up money to buy something if you're just going to shut it down? Yeah. This is a really important conversation, really important topic, and I feel like it's coming down the track really quickly because we're seeing significant numbers of proposed facilities, financial transactions that are focused on this topic. So before I dive into that, though, let me just say that I think you are making a point that I have come to hold dear, which is that economics aren't destiny when it comes to the existing fleet. They may be destiny for a new build because you just don't build new expensive polluting stuff anymore, but they are not going to be the driver for taking these existing assets offline. And I think that is an important thing for us to all grapple with because so many of our strategies and so much of our thinking is predicated on the fact that we need to make our stuff cheaper and their stuff more expensive, which has taken us a long way and it's a necessary precondition, but it by itself will not get these assets offline. And so I think that's just an important point to make. When it comes to that end game, I basically think there's three options. We are looking at bailouts, buyouts, or bankruptcies. Now, we have seen two of those three tried repeatedly, and we are basically living in the night of the living dead with a bunch of zombie assets that just simply won't go away because we've seen the bankruptcy movie. Coal plants, coal mines go bankrupt. They're often bought out by private equity firms. Worker liabilities are shed in the process. They are bought for pennies on the dollar and they're sweated and continue to run. Eventually that cycle has to come to an end, but eventually can be much longer than the time frame we have. Mm -hmm. So that's a very key limitation, I think, of bankruptcy. And I think it's actually, unfortunately, a bit of where much of our effort has been focused. You know, it's about making these stranded assets, driving them into bankruptcy, but that's not an end by itself. And it's not the end we should be seeking. And then the other one is obviously the one that our opponents prefer, which is bailouts. <laughs> and we see that in so many different ways, in so many different forms, whether it's capacity payments, direct subsidies, direct lines of credit, public finance, you name it. And so I think that leaves us with the last, which is buyouts. And that is a bit of a bitter pill for some people to swallow, but I think it's the actual reality we face. And we need to I think, look at it with kind of cold-eyed realism and think about how we structure these deals so that we can get these assets offline. 
So just to say, it's obviously not the optimal solution. In an ideal world, we would be regulating these things out of existence, but we don't live in an ideal world. We all know that. And so we have to meet the world where it is. So I just want to make sure I say that so people don't think that I'm necessarily focused on ensuring people get bought out and taken care of at the expense of workers or the planet. But just to say one note, and I think this is an important data point, so for just 5% of what the U.S. spent on COVID-19 recoveries, we could have bought out every single coal plant in the world and shut it down. Wow. And the reason I put that out there is because that's bailout money. That's the money that is going to perpetuate a broken system, keep stranded assets alive. And the reason I bring it up is that we have more than enough money to do this. Money is actually not the issue. What we need to do is start repurposing how we use money and what our end goal is. So... That, I think, is point number one. Point number two that comes out of that point that it's very cost-effective to do this is that if you were to plot the cost per ton, the abatement cost of buying out and shutting down old coal plants compared to just about every other abatement opportunity we have, it is pennies on the dollar. It is stupidly cheap on the trusty old McKinsey curve. And I've had people working on green banks here in the U.S. and internationally say that if they were honest about plotting how they should use new green bank dollars on a curve like that, it'd be really hard not to justify spending all of it on buying out coal plants and shutting it down. Hmm. Just because the sheer volume of abatement potential per dollar spent is incredible. So that's a bit about the why. And now the question you have is like, how are we going to do it? What are the possibilities? I think it's really important to say that it's not just securitization. Securitization is a function of a particular regulatory structure in a particular part of the world, but this is going to look very different in different parts of the world. And so we have seen different vehicles floated by different international public institutions, by different global banks that range everywhere from essentially a kind of low interest loan or refinancing facility, which is somewhat similar to securitization all the way to the private sector's favored solution, which would be bad banks or new special purpose vehicles, mm. which basically buy up the assets, get them off of utility balance sheets, and then run them in order to make their money back and then shut them down. So I think there's a bunch of ways we could do this. Now, when you invoke that concept of a bad bank, obviously I'm thinking back to the global financial crisis of 2008. In that case, the money that was used to create this bad bank essentially came from the treasury, right? So is there something similar here where we're using federal money to buy these plants out? Yeah. So there's a couple of obvious places where we would get this public money from. And we should point out that you will need public money to make this work. I think you could imagine green banks either here in the United States, if we could get a new green bank out of a potential reconciliation bill, that could be a source of public money to support these transactions. You could also imagine the international financial institution architecture, the Bretton Woods system of institutions. So the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, those institutions repurposing some of their climate finance so that it's not just about promoting and de-risking new clean energy. It's also about buying out and shutting down high carbon energy. So I think those are a couple of the pots of money within the existing architecture or potentially new architecture where this money could come from. Hmm. Okay. I wonder if it'd be useful here to just take a case in point. So let's say, I don't know, take your pick. South Africa or India or Indonesia coal plants that we want to shut down, what would be the financial facility that that would be done through? Yeah. So 
like I said, there's a couple of different options. I think the one that looks potentially the most interesting, but it really does depend on the country context and the entity we are trying to finance, is likely a new low interest loan facility, which would basically mean you refinance a utility. So potentially ESCOM in South Africa, for instance, and your refinancing helps them to shut down the existing asset and then most importantly, rebuild new clean energy assets in its place because the new assets you build will generate new additional value, essentially new money for the utility, which will help pay back the loan and create economic value over time. And I think that's one of the big differences between just directly refinancing the entities that have these assets on their books versus creating new facilities, new ring-fenced facilities that would buy the assets up, take them off of the utility balance sheets, and then eventually shut them down, hmm. which is that you want to tie the future upside of clean energy replacement with the downside of shutting down an existing stranded asset. Hmm. That's how you create new value. That's how you make the economics work. And it's also, I think, important for ensuring that we're not just shutting down old coal plants and then either building new, more efficient coal plants in their stead or new gas plants. I think that linkage is really important. So in that case, it sounds like there are some clear reasons that you'd want to actually recapitalize the utility and not just the coal plants themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it really is about that kind of corporate parent relationship and transaction, not necessarily the project level transaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about your five rules here because I think these are instructive. The first is to, quote, align incentives through public ownership. What does that mean? So this came about actually in reaction to many of the different potential structures that I had seen floated from private sector financial institutions over the last several months. And it was bothering me and I couldn't quite put my finger on why. I mean, there's nothing necessarily bad about a bank being involved in some of these transactions. And what I realized was that the thing that matters is that we are aligning the objective of these transactions with the outcome that we all seek, which is addressing climate change, making sure coal plants shut down. And I think the only way we do that is with public institutions and public governance and oversight in the driver's seat. Because if public institutions are not driving these deals, then you have private sector institutions which are, and their incentives are not focused on that end goal. Their incentives are focused on making a dollar. And so you could imagine that, and we see this all the time, market conditions change, you know, the price of coal goes up, it goes down. And you could imagine very strong incentives to either not retire assets on the timelines that were pre-negotiated or not to hit and I think this is really important, interim milestones on the road to closure. And so I think the only way we ensure that we get to the end outcome we seek is that we have clear lines of accountability driven by public institutions. It's also true that I don't see how you do this. Well, I think there might be ways, but mostly I don't see how you do this without public dollars taking some sort of de-risking or hit in the financial transaction. Hmm. Okay. So public ownership is really key here. Like you don't see a way to do this just with private capital. Not with private capital by itself. That's not to say, and I think we should distinguish the fact that you could imagine private capital playing a role and you could very well imagine private institutions being involved. But there's a difference between them taking the directive of a public institution who's truly in charge and being in charge themselves. And I think that's the line I'm trying to draw. 
Gotcha. Okay, that makes good sense. All right, so the second rule is, quote, achieve market-based pricing through reverse auctions. Now, I know that when you appeared on the show previously, we talked a little bit about reverse auctions, and I think we covered that in another episode as well. But just for today's discussion, why are reverse auctions the preferred way to assign a value to these plants? So I think it goes back to your question of where are we going to find the money? The reality is we don't have deep bottomless amounts of public money in the existing system, and so we need to be wise about how we spend it. Because every dollar we waste is a dollar we don't use helping to shut down a coal plant. So I think we just need to be precious and smart in how we use those public dollars. The second is that, again, this is a reaction to some of the vehicles I've seen floated, which have used book value of existing assets rather than market value. So they're basically saying, here's how much we bought it for. Here's how much we think it's depreciated. Here's how much you should pay us. But as we all know, that's not how markets work. Markets are a willing negotiated price between a buyer and a seller. And it just depends on what people are willing to pay. And so what we need to do is figure out what that price actually is. And we know that the market is not kind for coal plants, which means we should not be just assuming that the entity trying to sell these can be taken credibly in terms of what they say they're worth. And I think that has been most clear when you look at the prices that HSBC and ADB first floated for coal plants in Indonesia and in other parts of Southeast Asia. They were basically 20 times the level that we saw in reverse auctions run by the German government. Wow. Now, like, let's be honest, Asia is not Germany. I'm very well aware of that. But we should also be clear-eyed that some of the coal plants that were run through those reverse auctions in Germany were as young as six years old. So we are not talking about old clunkers that just needed to shut down. We're talking about very brand new plants with lots of undepreciated, lots of equity returns yet to be made. And yet they went for pennies on the dollar compared to what the ADB and HSBC were assuming coal plants would be worth in Asia. So I think it's extremely important that we actually have these assets exposed to the light of day and see what they're really worth. And for those who aren't familiar with reverse auctions, why don't you briefly describe how that works? So what you would do, I think, in an ideal world is a public entity or a pot of money or however we structure these things would say, look, we have a million dollars, X amount of dollars available to buy old coal plants or coal plants that exist. Everybody out in the world, please bid on how much you would be willing to shut down your coal plant for. And so what you're trying to do is get utilities and entities out in the real world to bid blindly into an auction that has several bidders so that we can force a bit of competition and force them to show us what they're actually willing to accept, not what they say that the assets are worth. Okay. So I want to be really clear about this. With a reverse auction, you're basically taking the lowest bid rather than the highest bid. That's what the meaning of the word reverse is, right? Yep. In this case, going back to your first rule about how you really need to have the investment directed by public ownership at the very least, you don't have public entities here actually participating in this reverse auction. Right. So how do you bring those two elements together? Well, yeah, we should clarify this. You would have the reverse auctions driven by a public entity that is putting up the dollars, potentially also some private dollars too, but they are in the driver's seat. You may actually at this stage have a bank or an asset manager or some kind of private institution helping to manage these transactions and run these auctions and actually help you find price discovery. So that's one potential role for the private sector. 
And then in terms of who would actually bid into that auction, you could imagine public entities, you could imagine a public utility bidding assets into that auction. So I want to be clear that it doesn't mean that you wouldn't have a public entity bidding into a reverse auction. You definitely could. You could also have private entities, IPPs and others bidding into those auctions. Hmm. Okay. All right. So your third rule is don't use public dollars to juice private returns or game carbon markets. What kind of games are we talking about here? No, the games. So many games. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now another exciting edition of Cold Death Watch. Item 1. A report released in September by E3G, Ember, and Global Energy Monitor, titled No New Coal by 2021, details the progress made since the Paris Agreement in 2015 to shut down coal. The global pipeline of proposed new coal power plants has collapsed, it says, with only a handful of coal plants in planning, and many of those are so-called zombie projects, unlikely to ever be built. Ember, an independent climate and energy think tank based in London, subsequently released a publication titled No New Coal Factbook in October. It presents up-to-date data showing that just 21 economies have a pre-construction pipeline of more than one coal plant, with the largest pipelines in China, India, Vietnam, Indonesia, Turkey, and Bangladesh. But 80% of those countries have projects that are seeking financing from China, which is now in doubt following China's recent announcement that it will stop financing overseas coal projects. And as we detailed in episodes 91, 93, and 138, there are good reasons to doubt that the planned plants will ever get built in Southeast Asian countries. A further 16 economies have just one proposed coal plant and could readily commit to no new coal, including heavily coal-dependent countries such as Australia and Poland, as well as Cambodia, Kenya, Kazakhstan, and Morocco, according to the report. Item 2. The latest biennial integrated resource plan from Pacificor, the parent company to Wyoming's largest electric utility, Rocky Mountain Power, included no new investment in coal or natural gas. But it did include more than 3.6 gigawatts of new wind, more than 5.6 gigawatts of new solar. 
Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.